Um, but thank you all so much for being here today. Good morning. I want to welcome any visitors we have joining us. Thank you so much for being here. And if you have any questions about 4th Avenue, we would love to get to know you and your family. Thank you so much for joining us today. This morning, we're beginning a series on the book of Revelation. And that is not Revelations, by the way. It is a singular revelation. And I am super stoked to go through a study of this book with y'all. I love it, and I think it is so beautiful and powerful. And some of you may be super interested in this book, and some of you may be like, oh no, why? Why are we going through this? From my preaching classes, I remember several preachers saying something to the extent of, you know, during my ministry career, I've basically gone through every book of the Bible. Well, except for Revelation. Understandably so, because this can be a super confusing book and super polarizing as well. As such, here is my preface for the series. I am not the authoritative expert of this book, and if you disagree with my interpretations, that's okay. I'm pulling from classes that I've had on this from people I would consider experts in my own research and the commentaries and history, but I'd ask for you to remain open even if you disagree with me because I think that there is something powerful here for us all. And truthfully, people have disagreed about this book for a very, very, very long time. In fact, the book of Revelation almost did not make the cut to be a part of the finalized New Testament. However, in the fourth century, Athanasius and some other early Christians insisted that it be included and argued that it was kind of the climax of the New Testament. But even though it made the New Testament, there has been a lot of debate about this book through the ages. For instance, Martin Luther in the 16th century, he said this about the book, that it is neither apostolic nor prophetic. I can in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it. I would disagree with those ideas, but <clears throat> he could not make sense of how this fit with the rest of the New Testament. So he, in his translation, he basically made it an appendix at the end. Through the ages, this has been a greatly debated book. And as such today, due to its polarizing nature, I think people have tended to gravitate towards one of two extremes with it. Either complete avoidance, like I previously mentioned, or complete obsession with it. Some people, it seems like, spend all their waking hours trying to connect the dots of the words of revelation to modern events and things going on right now. Some have become obsessed with end times theology or eschatology, which is what that's called, and split whole churches because of their views and how centrally they place their views with the gospel. Obsession with this book is what I believe has been behind the Left Behind series becoming such a bestseller. It's behind some of how quick people have been to call Obama or Trump the Antichrist, depending on how you look at it. Some have thought that the locusts in Revelation were actually talking about Apache helicopters. Some have thought that the mark of the beast was the barcode when it came out. Some have thought it's Walt Disney, because if you look closely, you can see six, six, and six in that logo. Some have thought it's monster energy, because if you use Hebrew numerology in the Vav, which is for the number six, then you do that together, boom, 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 666. However, the number is not 666, it is 666, 
or 616, depending on who you talk to. But um, anyway, people think it's that. Some have thought it's a microchip. Some Some have thought it's the COVID vaccine, right? There have been some pretty wild interpretations with this book. But all of this is not new. People throughout time have been trying to connect the dots of revelation in very speculative ways that make sense for their time, forming beliefs without any firm evidence to support it. For example, in the 900s, Good Friday occurred at the exact same day as the Feast of the Annunciation, which celebrates the incarnation of Jesus. And they thought since those days lined up perfectly, the Antichrist was going to be born in that year and at that time and thus begin the end times. Many people thought that the Black Plague, whenever that was going on, was the plague that was being talked about in Revelation. Many people thought that the end times were happening in World War II because it seemed like the world was about to explode. I was reading this week so many end times connections and end times predictions that were all wrong and noticed an interesting trend. Almost all of them apart from a few, such as Isaac Newton, randomly, who thought the world was going to end in 2060. But almost everybody else thought the world was going to end in their time, specifically. We have a bias towards our own time. And it's been happening forever. According to Pew Research, four out of ten U.S. adults believe that we are currently living in the end times. And there's an extent in which I agree with that, in that I believe that we've been living in the end times since the time of Jesus. But I'm guessing that's not really behind these people's answers. And truthfully, I don't really understand it. Jesus himself says that he doesn't even know when that day is going to be. So why are we even wasting our brain space on trying to figure out something Jesus doesn't know? Do we know more than Jesus? I'm going to guess no. I agree that the belief and Christ's second coming and imminent return can bring about really good fruit in a believer's life. It can help us live our days like they are numbered, because they are. But at the same time, obsession and trying to connect the dots and figure out what's going on in the world and what's talking about what for the end times can make us miss out on living present, living the way that Jesus wants us to live. The end could be right now. Jesus could come right now. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. I would love that. Or it could happen thousands of years into the future. We don't know. But we should always live like our days are numbered because they are. But reading Revelation as speculation misses the beauty of this book. Early saints such as Augustine in his work City of God, he warns the church, actually, of treating Revelation in speculative ways because he thought once it made the New Testament that people have a propensity to come up with some pretty wild ideas. And he knew the likelihood that we would do that. So we aren't going through this book because I've been looking at the times and I think we need it for this moment specifically. No, the church has needed this for nearly 2,000 years. The church needs the encouraging words of Revelation And though this book is often used in fear tactic kind of ways, Revelation is not a book to make us fear, but provides comfort and courage. It gives us strength to hold on to Jesus in the midst of whatever life challenges we face because in Christ the war is won. 
We are going through this series to behold the power and the majesty and glory of our God. And that then enables us to become a church that is on fire for him. This is about getting a glimpse of God that makes us want to be people who are feared by hell and not just pew fillers. To become a church that actually believes that God has the power to change our lives and our neighbors and our community and the world. To become a church that increasingly seeks to want to do everything, every single thing in our lives for the glory of God. But in order to become that kind of church, we need to believe that Jesus is worthy of it all. We need to believe that what I think best and how I want to live is worthy of being sacrificed because what Jesus is offering is so much better. Saying yes to Jesus is saying no to millions of different versions of the type of person you can become. But the life that Jesus is offering us is worth giving up everything that we have. So let's get into this. I'm excited. Woo! You can't tell. Let's get into some background first to kill the mood a little bit. Um, Because I think, especially for Revelation, we need to do a little background work. There's some debate about whether this is written by John the Apostle or John the Revelator. For our discussion, it doesn't matter. So whatever you think, have fun with it. But uh, this vision is likely to have occurred in the island of Patmos, which is in the Aegean Sea. And that is a picture of where they think that 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 happened. I was so lucky, actually, while I was in the interview process with y'all, to be able to go there and... um, You know, it's a small island. There's probably not tons of caves, so it's a good chance it was there. But it was really cool being in that moment. But this book uh, was written near the end of John's life, it is estimated. And it's likely the newest book of the Bible, written sometime in the 90s AD. And a big part of our discussion needs to be on the genre of this book. Because the genre is really hard to identify, honestly. It's important in general to know the genre of the books of the Bible as we read it, because the Bible's kind of, it's a book, but it's also a library. Each, each book has its own distinct context and culture. So if we read Revelation like we read the Gospel of Luke, we're going to come up with some really interesting ideas. But Revelation is meant to be read, as one of my professors called it, as a, as a mishkatang. Everyone say mishkatang. <laughs> that was close. Um... If you can't tell, that's a German word for mixed genre, because Revelation clearly has at least three genres associated with it. The first is an epistle or a letter. It's from John, written to the seven churches in Asia, and these are local congregations in the region of Asia Minor. And therefore, as with all scripture, we need to remember that this is written to a specific group of people that spoke a different language than us, that lived in a different time than us, us. and therefore, it is most likely that this made a lot of sense to them. So if the interpretations were all things that were coming in the 21st century, (laughs) it probably wouldn't have meant much to the early church and may not have even made the New Testament. And the context of this book is that the church is facing incredible persecution from the Roman government. It started really ramping up with Nero, And then it picked up with Vespasian and then really ramped up under Domitian, who was likely the emperor at the time of composition here. 
And I'm not talking about what we call persecution in our culture. I'm talking about being dipped in oil, burned alive, and crucified kind of persecution. They were facing immense pressure to conform. Their choice was to either accept the luxury of the Roman lifestyle, which that had to have been a big temptation, or face public ridicule and potentially die a torturous death. So this book is written as an encouragement to keep up the good fight and know that though this hardship is intense, the war is won and Jesus is victorious. So that's one genre, okay, the letter. Another is prophecy. And while we think of prophecy oftentimes being associated with something in the future, and I do think there are parts of Revelation like that, biblical prophecy oftentimes is more of a thus says the Lord kind of thing. It's speaking a word of God given from God and is more times than not a present thing. And while I think some of Revelation speaks of something in the future, some of it is very clearly, I think, talking about their present reality. Some of it's even pointing backwards in time. But it follows a lot of similarities to biblical prophecy. So this is a word from God for us to hear. And finally, the last one, and this one's really important, is apocalyptic. Apocalyptic literature is really, you need to know about it before we, we dive into this book. In Revelation, it shares a lot with other apocalyptic writings, such as parts of Daniel, parts of Ezekiel, and the book of Enoch, which is not in our Bible, but it's a work written before the time of Jesus, and it was in the Jewish mind. Whenever we think of the word apocalypse, we oftentimes think the end of the world, right? However, the word apocalypse comes from a Greek word, apocalypsis, which means to reveal, or wait for it, revelation. Apocalyptic literature is all about unveiling that things are not what they seem in very symbolic and dramatic and representative ways. And when I say representative, I mean that numbers, colors, animals, natural disasters, they're all significant and mean something, oftentimes representing something in the world that we are familiar with. In the Bible, apocalypse is when God removes the veil to show someone what's going on from a divine perspective. But it is also to anchor us in the present with hope for the future, which was especially necessary for a church that was going through as intense of persecution as this one was. So Revelation is seeped in all of this Jewish imagery and is highly symbolic and poetic, and in my opinion, should not be read, at least should not fully be read as literal. And there may be some other genres that are sprinkled in here as well, but these three are certainly the most dominant. And some of you may be like, why wouldn't John just come out and tell us what it is, you know? Why does he have to embed all of this stuff in such deep symbolism? Just give us the facts, right? But there is something about imagery, there's something about story that inspires us in ways that mere words cannot do. For the prodigal son story, Jesus could have just said, the dumb son came home, right? That's a huge reduction of that story. Or that God shows mercy to sinners, right? But instead, he, he tells this elaborate story of God's love and grace. And it, it stirs something in our hearts. And that's no different here. It is this imagery and really the truth behind it that breeds confidence in this desire to want to run through a wall for Jesus, that, wants us, that makes us want to fight the forces of darkness 
in a way that simply stating the words cannot do. So, that's a little introduction, but as we go through this book, church, I just want to encourage you all to join me in beholding the glory of our God together. In 2017, a movie slash musical came out that rocked the world called The Greatest Showman. It was a box office hit, and people were left singing the songs forever and ever, including myself. In this story, it portrays the life of the American showman P.T. Barnum and his circus. And part of the plot includes Barnum getting swept up in his work as his fame and success grew and started drifting more and more away from his wife and his family. And then there is this singer that joined his show who is super talented and gifted and took it to another level. And he started to become infatuated with her. And it got to a point where she makes a move on him and he resists it. But to retaliate, at the end of one of their shows, she kisses him and then it's photographed and then it's blasted to all the newspapers and ultimately his wife sees it. And his wife then takes their daughters and goes and lives with her family. And this, along with his circus actually burning to the ground, led him to a spot of ruin where he finds himself in a local bar and drowning his sorrows. And then that is all the context for the song from now on. And which is, there's so much gospel baked into that song, by the way. But it's all about him reclaiming and remembering his first love. And wanting to run back to his wife and reconcile and make things right. I believe this movie had such a huge hit not just because the songs were all wildly catchy, but because it hits at deep, real-life life experiences. So often our relationships, marital or friendships, can drift. And the more that we don't keep our gaze on our loved ones, the more we start looking elsewhere. And there can really be this numbness that develops in a relationship, this boredom, This feeling of, is this really all that this is going to be? And our hearts can begin to question, is the grass greener on the other side? And this drift in losing sight of our first love is very true of our relationship with Jesus as well. In the first letter to a church in Revelation, which is to the church in Ephesus, we read Jesus begin by saying some positive things about this church such as their patient endurance and their opposition to evil. But then we read this in verse 4 of chapter 2. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. I read this and immediately thought about how relatable this is to our own relationship with Christ. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. It doesn't quite convey the seriousness of this in the Greek. It's more you have forsaken this love. You have released it. You have drifted. You have become numb. You might have a good reputation among others, but you have lost your focus, your passion, and your commitment to who this is all for. And this makes me look inward, church. And I pray that we ask ourselves this. Have I fixed my eyes 
on idols, ideologies, politics, material things, money, comfort, pleasure, even our own grief, and lost sight of who this is all for. Have we forgotten our first love? One of my all-time favorite parts in any song is what we sang just a little bit ago. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And this is my favorite line. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Because whenever you're beholding Jesus and seeing him in his glory, everything else just feels so small and not important, right? But sometimes I think we do the opposite of this song. We fix our eyes on the world. We fix our eyes on our comfort and the material things. And the more that we do that, our relationship with God and Jesus begins to grow dim. Church this morning, I challenge you. Let's fix our eyes back on Jesus. And spend some time just looking fully at him. Because without a vision of Christ, our church will grow dim. So every day, every morning, whenever we think about it, when it comes to our brains, let's, and it puts everything else in perspective. So let's behold the glory of Jesus, beginning with how John saw him in Revelation chapter 1. Here we get this really powerful vision of Christ. And I invite you, if it helps you visualize this, close your eyes as I read this description. So as John receives word from Jesus to record what he writes, we see this in Chapter 1, verse 12. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. That's a pretty spectacular image, isn't it? So let's, let's break down this image a little bit and behold the glory of Jesus together. First of all, the number seven, you are going to see that pop up everywhere in Revelation. It is the number of completeness and wholeness and holiness. And the lampstands here represent the seven churches that this book is being written to. But in the Old Testament, there's a connection with the lampstands to the lampstands that were in the temple. And in Zechariah chapter four, there's a connection there with these lampstands and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the one who is standing in the middle, like it's this circle around him. He is standing in the middle of these churches, and he is holding them up. He is the unifying point, and all of these churches are burning brightly. I guess some are dimly, but burning for the risen Christ. And then most of the rest of this chapter is straight from Daniel chapter 7 or Daniel 10. One like a son of man is a title that's first used in Daniel 7 which says, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, 
honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. This is all talking about a figure, the Son of Man, that is to come, that is going to rule over all the nations, rule over everything, and establish a kingdom that will never end. And that's what Revelation is describing in very poetic ways. Going back to Revelation 1, he's wearing a long robe with a gold sash around it. This is priestly attire because he is our high priest. And gold represents his holiness and divinity and sovereignty because he is truly the king. His white hair represents his wisdom and his eternality in that he truly is the one who was and is and is to come. His eyes of fire are designating his purifying gaze and his divinity as well. There are other writings around this time where divine figures are portrayed with fiery eyes. His feet were like refined bronze, which means that he is stable. He is immovable, and he is truly our firm foundation. His voice thundered like the ocean, illustrating the power of his word and his voice and the persistent movement of it. The seven stars he held in his hand, that could be several things. But one thing that is super fascinating, especially for the context, is that oftentimes Roman emperors were equated with the deities and the stars and the constellations. And Jesus holding these stars in his hands is a sign that he has authority over all the nations and over all the cosmos, right? A sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth which you could compare to Hebrews 4 that says the word of God is sharp and active like a double-edged sword, right? But it also comes from Isaiah 49, which speaks of God's words as powerful as a sword. And his face shined like the sun in all its brilliance. This echoes Daniel 10 as God's face is bright like lightning. And also it echoes Exodus 34, how Yahweh's glory was so brilliant that Moses couldn't even look at him directly. All of that is packed into this description of Jesus. Isn't that powerful? And that conveys something that words just simply can't do. And then John, in seeing this beautiful, unbelievably holy and powerful vision, here's his response in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. This is the consistent response that you see in Scripture whenever people are beholding the glory of God. It is one of holy reverence and fear, one of falling down on their face, one of taking off their sandals because they're standing on holy ground, one of saying, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. And once you experience this holiness, this glory, you walk away from it forever changed. In October, truthfully, there was a point in my life where there's been a lot of points in my life, and it's probably going to happen again in the future, where you feel like your relationship with Jesus feels a little numb. Where going in the morning to do your spiritual disciplines might be a little challenging. And you're not doing it with the excitement that you have normally done before. And I was kind of in a little bit of that season, and I hate being in those seasons. And I went to a pastor's conference here in Franklin, And I was hit with the glory of God in a way that I never have in my life. 
And if you were at uh, Witness the night that I got a little emotional, it was that night I went home and I felt like I just had to lay down. I was hit with just this weight of God's glory. And for three hours I, I laid in my bed and I just processed with Abby what was going on inside of me. I was regaining a perspective that there is a living God who dwells in unapproachable light that breathes galaxies into existence. And those galaxies bow to him. He knows every single atom that is in existence, that is in our bodies. He knows everything we've ever done and everything we will do and yet loves us. That God is real. And one day I'm going to stand before him, unveiled face to face and see him for all his glory. Church, I'm going to tell you that was one of the most recentering nights of my life. Because I realized that I was losing sight of my first love. I was losing sight of who this is all for. (laughs) It's not about me. It's not about anything else that I'm living my life for. It is all about the glory of Jesus. And I pray that my life is all about the glory of Jesus because nothing else matters in comparison to that. I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and I can't help but be different now because of it. And though God's glory is so paralyzingly awesome, God is also so empowering and kind. In the same vision that John falls to his feet as though he were dead, we read this, but he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death in the grave. Jesus is so holy that we can't even stand before him. But he reaches down, puts his hand on our shoulder, and says, don't be afraid. I have won. I have won. And I reign over everything. Death did not defeat me, and I am the victor. Christ is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last the lion and the lamb, the source of David, the bright and morning star, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lord God almighty, and he shall reign forever and ever. So church, my challenge this morning is may we never forget our first love and who this is all for. I want to take some time and let's pray to Jesus. Close your eyes and just take a little bit of time and go back to the moment that you first said yes to Jesus. Remember how you were feeling. Remember the weight that you felt and the weight being taken off once you realized that you're Sins are forgiven. Think about the zeal that you had. 
And I want to invite you to think about all of these moments in your life where Jesus has consistently shown up. Because, church, truthfully, God has been with you this whole time. He has never left you. He has been with you this whole time. Think about the people that he put in your life that altered the trajectory of your life, that were embodiments of his grace and love. Think about the times whenever there was no way forward. You felt like there was just this wall, and Jesus made that wall come crumbling down. And church, this morning, if you feel like you haven't really experienced these moments, I pray that Jesus gives you eyes to see this because he has been present with us this whole time. And I want to create this opportunity to do a renewal of our vows. Because I confess I've been looking at things that are taking my eyes off Jesus. My vision has been distracted. And Lord, I pray that you give me eyes to see you and you alone. Let's renew our vows this morning, church. Our lives are to be in service of Christ. It is all about Jesus and him being glorified. Jesus, help us to be like you. Amen. I want to conclude with reading this blessing over y'all. If y'all would please stand. And at the last line there, that's bolded, I want us all to read this together. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. From the sevenfold spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ, He is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead and the ruler of all the kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by the shedding of his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen.